Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Sisters, siblings, welcome to Penn Sunday School. I'm Matt Donnelly, and Godot's not here. Actually, I'm not here either. This is a bank show. I'm not even here. Yeah, no one's here. But before this moment, Penn had a chance to sit down and talk with the amazing established DJ, musician, song creator, artist, Dead Mouse. Dead Mouse is here talking with Penn Gillette. Here he is, preaching the love, Penn. Yeah, preaching the love, and I got to tell you, uh, I had this conversation with Dead Mouse, and uh, I really loved it. We really covered a lot of stuff. Um, really did. Uh, I didn't understand a lot about electronic dance music. I didn't understand a lot about. Uh, still don't, but I understand right. much more from talking to Dead Mouse. And uh, kindly, Ready Rich has edited out all the questions about Teller not talking. So here is me and Dead Mouse talking. Okay, so COVID run. This is, um, uh, I call it that because I, I used to do a web series called Coffee Run where we would pile up in a car and head off to Tim Hortons and uh, grab an extra large double-double. And that's not happening. So um, we're doing the COVID run. This is Mr. Penn Gillette, a bit of a magician, bit of an, uh, I don't know, is that the right thing? Is that the right to sure. say? Sure. We say that? We're happy. We're happy. Okay. Okay. I used to get really, uh, uh, not offended, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't go that far, but I'd say off-put with uh, DJ. Yeah. You're a DJ. I, and then, but now I think in my later years of, uh, you know, doing this for, I think, 20 years, it's just like, I'm like, yeah. Like, it does happen, you know, when we were first on Broadway, well, actually before Broadway, off-Broadway, and even touring around, if people said the M word around us. We would just, you know, you couldn't say magic or magician or anything because we were way, way different from that. You know, we were doing all these crazy mind games. And yeah, we used some of the principles of magic, but no, we didn't do that. Then it just fell away. I think you get successful enough or old enough where it doesn't matter. I remember, and I don't know when it was, probably in the uh, 80s where Bob Dylan just said he was a folk singer. After, you know, 30 years of I'm not a folk singer, don't call me a folk singer, I'm not a folk rocker, there's no such thing as folk rock, I don't do protest songs. What do you do, Bob? I'm a folk singer. <laughs> this is it. I, I sing so, for folks. I'm a, I'm a magician, you're a DJ. We're there, talking, there you go. Who cares? Yeah. Perfect. Actually, funny about Bob Dylan, um, when I was running around the world gallivanting and uh, uh, purveying music, uh, I used to get phone calls to my hotel room from older women uh, saying, are you, are you Bob Dylan? I'm, I'm not making this up. And I would be, I have no idea what you're talking about, lady. Uh, I'm not Bob Dylan. 
as you might have been able to tell from the sound of my voice. Uh, so have a, have a great day. Click. Uh, and this has actually happened more than once, and it, and it got really weird. <laughs> and I later found out that Bob Dylan and I share the same name. Ah. Oh, right. He's not, he's not Bob nor Dylan. No, he's not. He's Joel, Joel Zimmerman. No, uh, Robert Zimmerman. Robert Zimmerman. My bad. Uh, Robert Zimmerman. Uh, so we shared the same name, and uh, people would think I was his burner. Uh, pseudonym for checking into such and such hotel. And I always thought that was the strangest thing. And also Bob, you know, went electric, went through a lot of changes. There's no reason to think he wouldn't put on a mouse head and start doing uh, dance music. <laughs> totally plausible. Totally plausible. Yeah, yeah. That would be, uh, as a matter of fact, The <laughs> Onion, The Onion did a uh, parody about all the, um, all the controversy over Bob Dylan going EDM. Really? Yeah, I love the. I never saw that, and I, I thought I was. Yeah. A, I it was love Bob Dylan, and it had him sitting at a you know sitting at a desk with a. I I don't think it was a dead mouse head, but it was something like that. And Bob right. Dylan is uh, has gone electronica, and people are very upset about it. That's funny. I didn't know you were an Onion fan. I every time I talk about the Onion to to friends or or people, it's like they're like the what. And then as you look into it, and even sometimes I remember used to be getting shared onion, uh, like the videos they used to do at the newsroom because they were really yeah, well yeah. produced. Amazing. Uh, and, and so many people would think it's real. And that's, well, that's, that is what happened in the United States the past five years is people started thinking it was real. Right. So, yeah. it, I mean, all a, that stuff, you know, QAnon is really just an onion thing. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's just people saying, would it be fun if we believe this shit and, and right. they believe this shit and pretty soon they're shooting each other, you know? I wonder if it was like the onion. <laughs> really? Well, I, it, I, it certainly, I don't think it was literally the onion, but no, it right. certainly was emotionally the onion. Mm-hmm. That's nuts. Yeah. I, I don't even want to talk about it, to be honest. Like if, if there's been nothing but like, uh, things not to talk about this year it's just like i my, my i have a, I, I should probably write these down um but i have like a top five you know because because i've been i've been you know scattered around doing uh interviews podcasts this and that for this guy because i mean what else are we doing really um number one how, so what are you doing during the pandemic well you know <laughs> i've tried to do uh first of all i have two teenage children 14 to 15 so keeping them alive while they uh, live with their mother, father, and grandmother, and each other, and nobody else in seclusion, trying to uh, live through a computer. Uh, dealing with their daily suffering is a full-time job. And then I decided that, uh, you know, there were two things I wanted to do in my uh, life that I hadn't done. And one was to play a musical instrument. So 20 years ago, I took up upright bebop jazz bass and practiced that. And I uh, never knew a language other than uh, my native tongue. And uh, start of COVID, I, um, or a little bit into it, I started learning Spanish uh, 90 minutes a day with tutors and stuff to try to uh, maybe another 100, 200 hours be a little bit conversant in another language because I want to think about myself in another way. Hmm. And I'm stuck thinking in this one language and I want to get out of that. I also want to see who I am in another language. And uh, I 
finally finished a novel, and I'm also my second novel, and I'm also working with Teller because we did um, two episodes of uh, two seasons of Fool Us in uh, in lockdown, and uh, that was crazy to write magic for uh, for people who weren't there. As a matter of fact, for the next season. Uh, I will probably, and I'm not putting you on the spot, but I will probably ask if you'd like, uh, if you if you'd allow us to do a magic trick for you for that show. Sure, I mean, it seems I'm, I'm well, more than happy. But uh, so yeah. much here. Well, you, you, I did not put you on the spot, but then you said yes, but you didn't have to. Yeah, I could. I was going to ask it another time. Uh, uh, no, uh. fun, <laughs> fun, sunshine, not Canada. Don't threaten me with a good time. So where are you in Canada? Uh, I'm actually in Southern Ontario, uh, somewhere between Hamilton and Toronto. I'm like out in the woods. I grew up in Niagara Falls uh, and then, you know, uh, emigrated uh, an hour north to uh, Toronto because just kind of the big smoke, the big hustle and bustle of where you're going to get the job and that kind of thing. And uh, long story short, um, you know, I put on a mouse head and then decided to put on my big boy pants and buy a house uh, because, uh, yeah, you just throwing money away at, at rent and, and things like that. And you, you it just, you gotta have something that's yours, you know, but it's an asset, a home, a property, whatever. So uh, I just did that and then just got it over with five, six years ago uh, because I was doing a lot of touring and I never really got to the point where it was like, you know, I'm going to buy a home because why I'm never in it, you know? Sad story, actually, uh, part of my touring, even recently, so there was a nightclub uh, I was hired to go and uh, do some consulting for uh, in terms of their technology and stuff like that. And I, th I think we'll kind of segue off this into this other thing I want to talk to you about. But uh, I was at uh, the Palms for a while uh, while they built up this uh, mega financial disaster known as chaos, aptly named. The thing is with, with uh, DJs and these contracts is a lot of them have things in it. And I was wondering, maybe it's different for you, but for me, I played the wind property for a while. I did the XS nightclub thing. And then I did uh, the other uh, MGM property for a bit over the span of 10 years. And this, there's always something in the contract that says you can't leave the compound. Like, so I, I couldn't go to another nightclub at another thing just because they didn't want photos of me at the thing. And I could see your marquee from my hotel room. And I'm like, I've always wanted to go and see your show live because I'm a fan. I, since, uh, you know, I think um, my intro to uh, Penn and Teller was bullshit. And uh, it was great. I was like, oh, my God, this is so amazing. And, 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 and you know, of course, you know, I'd follow and every time you guys, you know, I didn't, I didn't change the channel when that kind of stuff came on. So I, I, I'm standing in my room. The Rio is across the street. I couldn't go. Like, and, and because I was stuck at that station casino for weeks. And it's just I, I'm talking to the I'm like, can I? go and they're like ah, no because you need to get a photo because you know what's going to go down you, you know someone's going to see you and take a picture and that's you're going to throw away your you know they don't have to pay you because you broke your thing like holy shit really and <laughs> yeah really i'm like we oh, went okay. to we went to the wind we had this weird every once in a while as you know in uh, show business very crazy gigs come up and some corporate group wanted to hire Penn and Teller to perform at a club. So the idea was they would have their champagne and their 
places and there'd be music. But in between, for this corporation, we would come on to this entirely inadequate stage, badly lit, grotesquely overpaid, and do um, 20 minutes of no one paying attention to us, of nice. material that we would be doing on the streets 30 years before for free, this huge amount of money. Exactly. And uh, I remember being in that club with uh, Teller and a manager and a couple crew guys going, how are we going to do this clusterfuck? And there over on a couch was the dead mouse head on the couch. I had nothing to do with this. Just disclaimer. Okay. And we said, <laughs> is he, is he playing this club? <gasps> and they said, I think he's in at night or something. I know what and you're talking went, about. And we said, and he just leaves the head. I mean, with the, cause I'm good friends with the residents, you know, or I was good friends with the residents and they had their eyeball heads and one of them was stolen. And I said, wouldn't someone steal the dead mouse head? And then Teller said, wouldn't we steal the dead mouse head? Oh, and I my. Said, I, I don't think we would, but it sure would be funny if you went out on stage tonight with the actual dead mouse head on. You know, that uh, you'd be in the local paper, you know, Teller is now dead mouse. Maybe Teller was dead mouse all along. But it was just sitting there, and we said, uh, well, you know, we won't, we won't touch it or anything but it's funny they just left it out on the couch and we figured the head you wear must be pretty nice it must have like air conditioning and no no just paper mache bullshit it, it, it smells like feet and wet cardboard like it's well no it's not it's not paper mache bullshit i wish it was uh just like i wish they were disposable so that we could really leave them i i remember what you i know what you're talking about and i actually remember that the actual head, uh, the, the hero head, uh, is built by uh, the Jim Henson Company out in Burbank. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's because. So it fits it's on just, your shoulders oh, yeah, yeah. real nice. Real nice. Well, you know, and there's a real science to that because I was, I remember like in the early days when we would just find a, a prop maker or something to build one, um, they may or may not have considered how three pounds turns into 40 pounds in 20 minutes. And, and it's all a matter of how it's balanced, you know, because you see these, you know, like Kenyan women with these 400 <laughs> gallon jugs of water on their head, you know, walking and stuff like that, because they've got that weight distributed properly down their spine and stuff like that. And of course, Henson's are the, they're the undisputed gods of high fashion and uh, functionality, I guess. They told me, you know, oh, you know, it's just like literally two degrees, you know, this way or that way. And, and that's the difference between being able to wear this for 30 minutes or 30 days. Uh, and it was really cool. So now, now we've got that system down. But it's really at the end of the day, it's just kind of like a, a modified version of a hard hat on the inside. So it's not something we could just, you know, throw it in the wash. Uh, so it sits in a it sits in a rogue case and, and just you know we're, I'm done yay blah, disassemble put now in a rogue much, case. Uh, how much stuff do you have to bring with you to do a gig? Personally, or logistic underwear. I mean show. Well, th that's what I mean. Like like I would bring some things like a laptop, a couple of uh, things you know that go to the stage and stuff like that. But the backline we have two shows like 
you know, you've got your A show and your B show, the A show they, being the whole production. They, and that's, that could be two or three trucks. Uh, so you're uh, responsible for all the lights and sound and. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we own a production company. So uh, it's just, it turned into that thing like, wait, VR, this costs what to rent for two days, you know? And then it kind of makes sense because it's still half the price of what the retail price would be of the thing, you know? But if you do enough shows, it's like, why don't we just buy it and then start a company and rent it out and be them and upset them a little bit, but not too much. Because, you know, we have to have tractor trailer, you know, props. Yeah. Dumb shit. And you can't, uh, you know, your stuff looks like lights and sound. You know, our stuff looks like chipper shredders and, you know, small cages and then 16 suits that look identical. But we change costumes all the time because the pockets are all rigged with different shit. And hey, oh, the suits oh, do that. Oh, eh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's great that you're talking about this because, okay, so this week has been really strange for me. Actually, this whole month, um, there's been this new like social app called Clubhouse, and I'm on this thing, yeah. and I was just oh, yeah. great, great, another app, woohoo, you know. And I'm playing with it, whatever. And again, like it's, I'm not preaching it to the hills, and everyone should get on it. But it was just really interesting. So what ended up happening is I started hosting her, and then a magician showed up. And then three magicians showed up. And then basically every fucking magician in the world is like, you know, in my room and we're all talking about magic. It was a, it was a really fun thing because I then got into deeper conversations uh, with a, a fellow named uh, Giancarlo uh, and then another guy named Trig and, and then this guy and this guy. And these are, were all like, you know, pretty top players, I guess, you know, in their sure. field. And that's what they oh, did, yeah. you know, because, you know, you know, that guy that you meet at a party who just so happens to know one card trick, but he's a fucking investment banker or whatever. But, but these guys were full-time magicians and uh, they were playing around on the, on the internets, uh, you know, cause they're not doing club gigs and all that stuff too. So I started talking to him. I say, you know, there's some overlap here because I love magic in in the way that uh we we employ magic and you guys also employ this kind of magic in your stage show or something like that because to me a show is a show you know so are you going to the show you know what i mean so and then when a dj gets up on a stage and he's just got a a black table a couple of cd players and an led wall that's not really a show and he's not you know, an artisan up there with the mixer playing to other people's music. So, and that's fine. I'm not saying that that's not talent. Um, I, I think that maybe it could be better if there was technology or, you know, that, that pervade something, a message or, you know, and all that stuff, like the facade of, uh, you know, tech engineering uh magic and, and that show. And so, you know, I've developed uh, and worked uh, with, not Copperfield dudes, but stage engineers to come up with creative sure. things. And then I would come in and say, Hey, wouldn't it be neat if we could rotate this cube and then keep the image. So it looked like it was staying perfectly still like a reverse projection map effect and, and all that stuff. And that's the, those kind of became our moments at the show, right? It's like going to the kiss show. You don't, you don't go to listen to Gene's Getty Lee, you know, or whatever, you know, it's like, oh my God, he, it, I mean, you've heard them on CD and it's amazing, but you should see them live. You know, they're the most proficient players in the world. It's like you, you, the things that people talk about are like, oh yeah. And then, you know, the drummer took a rocket launcher and blew up a piece of the truss and it fell over. And, and I started to pick up on this like early in my career. So it was like, I would design um, moments where it was like, 
a, a systems crash where, you know, the windows blue screen of death would come up and then it would just be like making all the error noises. And then, the, and then the stage would go dark for like a minute and everyone would be like, you know, not like, how did he do that? But that happened, you know? So I make a point you know, to have little signposts in my shows of these cool little things, uh, expected or unexpected, of course, because that only works so many times. You have to constantly remind people that they're in a live show, you know, and uh, that's, uh, it's more and more important. And it'll be very, very important after uh, lockdown is over. But you know, there, what was a hard thing for me to learn is that there is one show business and we all have the identical job. The more people you meet, from different disciplines, the more you realize Bob Dylan and the mall Santa and Picasso and the guy in porn, we all have the same job. You know, we're, we're, the, we're the guys who do stuff after the chores are done. You know, after there's food and there's shelter and children are taken care of, then you got the goofballs that come out and whether you call us folk singers or DJs or magicians, it's all the same job. So, you know, you've got your, uh, your blue screen of death bit. You know, we've got our bit of what's going on and how we're going to pull this back together. It's all the same stuff, and it's, it's wonderful. Do you have a bit you loathe? I think. Or maybe, no. let's say, like less. Uh, yeah. Boy, this is, there's no way to spin this so it sounds good. No, um, I mean, I, I, I get posed with the same question. I'm just curious what, what your answer would be. Cause it was like, mine is the, you know, the big track that I'm like so known for. And it's like, uh, you know, when I'm doing it, if, if it came down to my show being a request hotline, it would be that. And then it would be like, say the line, Joel, you know, and there's then, this great uh, interview with uh, Paul Simon like on Good Morning America, someplace where it's incredibly inappropriate. And they're interviewing Paul Simon, who's, you know, one of the most successful pop musicians of all time. And they ask him about being on tour. This is, you know, 10 years ago. And he says, uh, you know, uh, usually about two thirds of the way through a tour, there'll be a moment when I start doing uh, You Can Call Me Al. And the whole audience is up dancing. And the band is rocking. And I just say to myself, I got to fucking stop this now. I can't <laughs> fucking stand it. And you see the Good Morning America person going, well, wait a minute. We didn't expect you to tell the truth. What are you, what are you doing? Um, stop. Stop. <laughs> I got to get the fuck out of here. Uh, and, you know, they haven't got to. They haven't got a delay on Paul Simon. What's Paul Simon going to say? Well, it turns out Paul Simon's going to say, I got to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> but for me, Teller and I agree on everything in the show. And so every nuance we go through together. And there's one bit that Teller got in his head was really, really good. And it is a kind of thing that I'm not a big fan of. So Teller kept knocking on it, trying to find something good that I would like. Right. Because he right, already right. liked it. And then after a year, we came up with this gloss on the whole thing, a punchline that made it surreal and pulled it out of what it was. 
and made that moment really, really good. And then I said, yeah, that's great. That the turn on that's really good, but I still fucking hate everything that leads up to it. Right. Right. I understand. We don't have to say what it is. Uh So I, uh, I watched every night and I say, cause I'm off stage for everything with the punchline. And I go, man, the audience loves this. Teller loves this. It's technically beautifully done. It's gorgeous. It's my children's favorite bit in the show. After the show, I'll get complimented on it four times, but this belongs in someone else's show. It just doesn't vibe out all the way through just like us. And Teller knows it. Teller's given whole lectures to magic clubs about this trick because they love it. And then starts his lecture by going, by the way, Ben doesn't care for this. (laughs) I got to tell you guys, uh, before we get back to uh, Dead Mouse, I've been going over all the stuff that we're sending out for people that are ordering my book, Random. And uh, it's really good stuff. I've been seeing the artwork. You know, they got the dice. We're sending a little bag for the dice. And you got the Chap book, which is a book of short stories. Four short stories that aren't available anywhere else that you get with the pre-order. And uh, I saw the design and stuff. It looks really, really good. I haven't seen the book itself yet. But I've seen all the design, the PDFs and stuff. And they look really, really boss. And, of course, the book. And I'll autograph it for you. And uh, for a pre-order to get it before it comes out, uh, there's a special deal. It's like 70 bucks or something. But if you're a Penn Sunday School Patreon, Patreon subscriber, if you help us out that way, you get more of a discount than it costs you to be a Patreon subscriber. So do that. Just do get on Patreon. Help us out. We can use the help. And then also buy uh, the book. Because I, th- I think you'll, if you like the podcast, you're going to really, really like the book. I can't conceal that I'm really proud of it. Check it out. Ready, Rich will put in more about how to do that. Go to patreon.com slash pen with two N's. And they can get any sort of tier they want. Yep. And that allow them to get my brand new book. Yes. Random in hardcover and autographed with a chap book. Look it up. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. So did you uh, play a musical instrument other than playing the room, playing the world? No. And that's the funny thing about um, music. I, I, you know, I, that's why I say, you know, I'm a producer, you know, because, you know, I'm introduced or pervade as a musician uh, or this or that. And, you know, whether I am or not, like, again, I'm over it. And it's just like, well, yeah, I I said I am. I make music. There you go. I'm a musician. Woohoo. But no, I'm not, I'm not proficient at any uh, thing that requires muscle memory. Uh, and except for video games, for some reason, <laughs> I'm really great at these, you know, those first person shooter battle Royale kind of games. Um, but when it comes down to, um, 88 keys or even 12, you know, it's, I, 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 I can figure it out because I know what it is in my head, but I can't, I don't, I can't, I don't have the hand that knows to automatically go to that thing. You know, it's like, 
typing when you're young, you know, you're oh, uh, H, you know, you're looking at the keyboard, but then after a couple weeks, you're, you're no longer looking at the keyboard and you're just uh, whipping away. And, and piano, I believe is a lot like that or any other instrument. It's just developing um, rudimentaries and um, muscle memory uh, and, and stuff like that. And that's just something that just never stuck with me. Uh, but it's so, it's so interesting to me because um, in making music, that was only a mistake of history, right? It was only that we needed to use these um, machines to make music and people needed to play them to make the music. I mean, there's no, there's no way that what was in Bach's head was necessary to come out his fingers that way. Right. And uh, it's fascinating to think of um, all the music, all the brilliant musicians that never developed the uh, technique to move that into the physical world that now are the fact that there's different personalities that are giving us kinds of music that we have. You know, we, we were, we uh, sometimes do stuff with MIT's media lab and uh, way back in the early nineties, we were developing um, with them sensor chairs and other ways to try to get people to um, be able to perform music with the uh, spontaneity of uh, movement like you'd have on an instrument, but without the, um, the years of uh, technical practice to get the interface closer between, if you will, the, the heart and the ear. And uh, I, I, you must be aware of this, but in 1982, Brian Eno did a, a lecture called uh, the... The studio is an instrument. It's called something like that. And I heard that ex- that lecture in the early 80s. That was the end of music that I've been brought up with. I'm 65 now. So um, the music that I was aware of, the bands that I were in, were still guitar, bass, drums, keyboard. And then in the 80s, uh, very clumsily and uncomfortably, you saw that happen. I mean, the Beatles did it a bit with Sergeant Peppers and Pink Floyd and that with the studio instruments, with the uh, studio being the instrument. But I was waiting so kind of patiently for music to move into a, uh, into a different form. And it is odd, but also so wonderful that in the past five years, I believe the only number one album that could be played was your namesake, Bob Dylan, who actually had an album on the charts that could be played by people in a room without sequences, without a computer, without so on. And you could even argue that the studio sound was still part of that. So when do you come? You you come native, right? Absolutely native to the non-traditional instrument way of making music. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, along those lines for sure, because it's a, uh, again, it, it's a tool set. So again, you know, running on the lines of the studio being an instrument, uh, but the studio comprising now of uh, a bit of a mixture, actually. And I think that's what kind of set me apart from uh, my counterparts is that um, traditionally, and, and, and using the term loosely here in electronic music, uh, in as we know it today, is very much 
all in the box, they call it uh, ATB for short or uh, ITB for short on the music forums and stuff like that. You see this acronym everywhere in the like professional space of, uh, you know, music making and engineering. Oh, don't you mix ITB or, or whatever. And I was like, huh? Oh, in the box, meaning it's all consolidated to software, a hundred percent software where it's you know, synthesized kick drums, snare drums and synths and uh, all the things that, that make what I guess would be known as a modern day electronica piece of music. But uh, I, I, I kind of, it was, I, I was so fortunate to be able to grow up and be on that edge right where, you know, electronic music had nothing to do with a computer. And it was still electronic music, but it, they use these older analog sequencers and, and stuff like that. And uh, of course, the recording medium was, wasn't a computer. It was a, a DA88, which was like a DAT tape or VHS tape or 24 track tape. So I, I, I started in that world because, um, and one of my things about, uh, you know, it's like, Oh, I want to make electronic music. Where do I go? Well, of course I had to go, I had to go intern at, um, radio stations, checked out record stores and their studios in the back. And of course everybody had all these different systems and stuff, but I ended up interning at a studio. Uh, and the guy had a 64 channel, big old hill console with all the VU meters and stuff like that. It was, he was old school dude, like, uh, you know, Mutt Lang kind of stuff where it was, yeah, we got a drummer in this room. There's 10 mics and he's recording the drums and it occupies this much room on the channel. And then the singer, he's here. Uh, and then this mix bus goes out there. So I learned the signal path and, uh, how the, how to, uh, with the, the basics of how to, how to treat that incoming signal or, or preamplify a mic and mic placement on a drum kit to get a good sound. That's, you know, the modern sound and all these like recording techniques that today have, have no application to the, uh, the, in the box producer and stuff like that. But the, in the box producer, the person who's using just a computer to make music are using programs and software that emulate that. Uh, so that's the, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to grow up through that space. So then computers were capable of recording audio and then synthesizing audio and then moving into that realm. So any, any new technology that ever came out for a computer, it's like, Oh, I know that that's, that's like, you know, the emulation of doing this. And of course it just got better and better. So uh, I mean, we're talking uh, 96 and up, you know, kind of thing is when basically PCs kind of started showing up in major studios with the first it was, you know, uh, the digital design, like the Pro Tools systems and stuff like that is where like that was the big thing. Oh, throw away your your Ampex, uh, you know, tape head or your EMI and then put in a computer, an expensive computer at first, but it records digital tool audio and, you know, and then that just kind of became a thing. So I was able to, to follow all the nuances of that technology. And that's what really helped me is because I was the kid, the whiz. Uh, so there were a lot of old studios or traditional studios, we'll call them, um, you know, dotted throughout Ontario. And I was the kid, you know, who, who knew the computers. So, uh, I could introduce the old bearded mutt langs to, uh, the advent of, well, guess what? You don't have to buy DA88 tapes till you're blue in the face anymore. Now you can just do it all on this computer and I'll set it up for you and show you how to use it in exchange, kind of, you know, off, off the contract in exchange for me learning what methods you previously used so that I can tailor this computer solution for you to best emulate what you already know. And that was a, that was like the golden age of, uh, transcendence, uh, between the analog and the digital world. Uh, and while obviously now the fight is, is like the digital world being so good that, you know, 
there's really no distinction uh, or you know audible difference from the regular consumer uh, or or enjoyer of music that says, yeah, I, I really like music, but I prefer the older recorded stuff versus this new stuff. Um, even though you know the medium is different, that the methods are the same because you still have great guitarists, great singers, great uh, drummers, and all that stuff, but they're just being recorded digitally now. And at first, you could tell because it was really it was a really harsh, abrasive sound, uh, whereas tape is analogous and you know, it's got that warmer kind of tone. But again, you know, as that technology evolved, you know, we were able to emulate the warm kind of really great recording. Um, but it's uh, one of my, I don't know what we call them, like uh, oil sticks of what sounds good digitally versus what sounded good was Dave Brubrecht's Take 5, the recording of it. Uh, that, like, to me is one of the, still to this day, one of the best recordings in, in terms of the recording arts, uh, not the performing, you know, well, of course he was, they were pretty good. Um, <laughs> they were all right, you know, but, uh, the sound, you know, yeah. and there's a fun thing too. I'm, I'm sure maybe, maybe you've been to a concert like a big rock concert, but you, you weren't at the concert. You went to sound check when they were just, you know, setting up all the big line arrays. There are like really still to this day, three songs that they use to test a system. Tom Sawyer by rush is like number one, two is, um, yeah. Okay. It's escaping me, but there's about three, you know, kind of go to pieces of recording, that they use to calibrate these big systems, even if it's Britney Spears or dead mouse or whatever that you're going to hear Tom Sawyer and in an arena, you know, uh, when they're, when they're loading in and testing out the system for uh, a couple of reasons. Uh, one, the dynamics of the track, you know, this is at a time when there was no, uh, and we can all look this up later for those who aren't aware the the loudness war, right? So where it's just, ah, you know, making this, thing as loud as possible giving no dynamic range to the speaker so you can't really test a good Meyer rig on a track like that you want to listen to this thing that you can you see the peaks and valleys of the of the amplitude of the waveform if you were to have it digitally represented so yeah a, you know and then listening to modern music today it's really hard to find the art in recording with electronic music and all this pop stuff and you know in, in its own right you know it's a whole thing this is the evolution you know this isn't the well when i was you know i hate that uh, gatekeeping you know what i mean because it's evolution is a thing but yeah uh, i that's where i came from and this is where it ended up so it's well, you know, I, I mentioned i'm very good friends with the residents and the residents as early as the 70s were playing around. I don't know how much, how familiar you are with the residents, but they're playing around with emulators and computer and that kind of music very early on and looking to get rid of the um, instruments, really. And I did a tour with them in Europe, uh, the Bowl Show in the 80s, where I was part of their opera. It was uh, crazy to see they never developed technical skills on instruments. They were all just computers. And as I said, that whole tour was in the, you know, in the uh, in 81. And what I was waiting for out of popular music, I mean, in the, there was that whole period of time where every snare drum was that Phil Collins gated snare. The Lynn, yeah. Been yeah, it had been recorded once and everybody used. And then when I got really crazy for this stuff was when I said, oh, wait a minute, they're now, they're no longer shooting the Stradivarius violin at the barn door, it hits there and they draw a target around it. So, you know, that's what a violin is supposed to sound like. 
because we decided that's what a violin sounds like. And a bass drum is supposed to sound tight and recorded from here. And you started hearing stuff at the bottom supplying the beat that did not have a, uh, an analog analog. You did not listen to it and go, I can picture the drum that's making that sound. Mm-hmm. It was just a waveform. What I love about the little bit, because I'm the wrong age for it and I don't go out, but um, the little bit of electronic dance music, I listen to a little bit of the DJ stuff. What drives me crazy is it how long it took for people to start making sounds that weren't weren't mapped onto something that came before. Right. You know, now we want a sound. If we want a sound that's kind of high and in tune and piercing, you know, we don't need to make it sound like a violin or a flute. Right. We can make it sound like whatever we have. And that kind of um, it took a while, level didn't of it? freedom, a long time. Yeah. That kind of level of freedom is paralyzing to some people because you get you get stuck thinking in that vocabulary. So we're waiting for the new the new rush of geniuses that go, you know, we want the mid-range to sound like this, and it doesn't have any sort of piano feel or any sort of organ feel or any sort of rhythm guitar feel. It just has emotionally what we want. And where I'm really waiting for that is in food. <laughs> because I'm a vegan. Uh-oh. And, and, um, so your options so are pretty limited saying, there. Yeah. Well, no, but I keep saying... Why are you always trying to make shit taste like a hamburger? Like meat. Yeah, well, like a well, it, Beyond Burger. Make it taste like something wonderful that I never heard Invent of. Invent a new vegetable. Yeah. <laughs> make it taste, do some cooking, and make it taste like that bass hit in this song that does not sound like any bass I've heard before. You do not have to make it sound like a Rickenbacker 4002 through a Marshall. <laughs> make it sound like a different kind of bass. Right, right. Because that's, yeah, yeah. We, we, we keep clinging on to emulation, things that were in a very short period of history, you know, anyway, yeah. you know. So why, why are we purveying this well into a uh, hundred years later, you know, I was like, uh, and it's funny you mentioned that because I, I, I keep seeing, and I'm always wondering how these businesses are able to succeed. Um, but there are companies like, uh, I just throwing it out there, like East West uh, makes, uh, oh, the complete uh, Stradivarius uh, fucking uh, sample library of the Stradivarius. And I'm like, holy shit, this is a, a like a thousand dollar product that sounds like an instrument that's been around for hundreds of thousands or uh, hundreds of years. Okay. I mean, I, I see how that could make sense to someone who's, uh, you know, doing a film score and they need to prototype something and this and that is because it's being played by real instruments in a, in a controlled setting and there's a market for that, but yeah, yeah, no, I hear you. Um, the, the food one is interesting though, because again, yeah, it's, it's almost the same thing. You know, it's a beyond burger. It's, it tastes like meat. It looks like meat. Yeah, it smells like meat, grow, but it's not meat. We're going to grow clean meat. We're going to grow, uh, cells in a, uh, laboratory. I'll tell you what's going to happen. Sound. I'll tell you I what's going to happen. They're going to become, never- we're going to do this. We're going to engineer the perfect hamburger. And then all of a sudden it's going to speak. And then we're going to go <laughs> right back to the, the board of ethics committees and, and talking about our little, uh, you know, invented cow creatures like uh, our tabletop cows that are, yeah. And then it's just going to go full circle on the ethics of food uh, and uh, how we, how we consume it. But I wanted to ask you, 
because I've asked several DJs this, but um, not at your level. And it is, I, forgive me, I know it is the most cliche question. Oh, uh, go for it. But I've never gotten an answer to this. Well, the more cliche it is, the better chances I have a really smart ass, funny answer for it. So this could be entertaining. Let's have it. Okay. Um, <laughs> comics always talk about playing the room. That the audience tells them where to go, where the jokes are going to go, and what they're going to do. And they are always lying. There are minor tweaks and there are feels, but the person on stage is predominantly leading and the, the audience goes there to be taken through the experience that the artist wants to take them through. Right. Yes. And you don't want input from the audience. Correct. Uh, Picasso does not sell his painting and then say, what do you want to add to this? Yeah, want to yeah, put yeah. some more yellow in here? <laughs> but the audience is still part of it. So when I'm doing a show, my volume, my tone, my speed, my stance, my aggression, all change moment by moment, night by night. But my text and my choreography and my direction don't change very much. Right. I am very, very tight ass. I touch my nose at the same time. My hand goes in my pocket at the same time. Now, the few, and I forgive me, I'm, I'm, I know I'm coming from a place of ignorance, but remember I'm 65 years old. The five, six, seven DJ shows I've been to, big ones, mm -hmm. high quality people, I stand there. And once again, I'm an observer because you can't be part of the culture without being part of the culture. You've got to live in it. You know, no one in 1968 could go see one Hendrix show and say anything interesting. You had to be part of the culture. And I'm wondering how much actual, actual riding of the pots and actual choices of materials are being made by the person in charge. Now, the bullshit way to do this was if we were still doing bullshit, I wanted to get a DJ working live and a DJ playing a recording and put and them both in a big room with oh, everybody. Bring it and back. Say, and say, can we tell the difference? Yes. We're just going to say, this is this is Dead Mouse on his best night. Yeah, and, and here he is, is on his worst night. Yeah. And this is another guy with a head, and he has hit precisely one button. For the whole night. Yeah. And everything else is fake. What are we feeling? What are we seeing? And everybody I've talked to who's a fan say they're waiting for the beat to drop. Mm -hmm. They're waiting for it to hit. Would you please, I realize it's an incredibly stupid question. It is. Would you please make it a smart question and answer it? Okay, there's a it's a it's a three part answer. One being a, a, a case study that you've provided. I've once, actually, very recently saw a video of the nail gun routine. Uh, I don't know if you've come across this little piece of magic on the internet, no. but they recorded uh, or found a uh, an airing of the nail gun routine, and they had played. You haven't seen this? Oh, I, no. I, I can't imagine. But okay, so they did the nail gun thing, and then they side by sided it with you doing the nail gun thing. And I shit you not, there was no video manipulation or editing, but holy fuck, pen. 
it was it was like you're watching the the same thing on a virtual set every syllable That's great. Every That's great. it was the most impressive thing, and so then that gave me that impressed me on two levels. One, the trick, you know, brilliant trick, one of my favorites. It's it's fucking awesome, and especially with the oh uh, oh uh, that like I was like oh my god, you know they and even though you know you know that there's just no way you're about to punch a nail through your head, you it's still even for me as a analytical mind made me go. Oh, wow. You know, like, oh, you know, for a minute, you know, and, and that was really amazing and masterfully done. But the even more impressive thing was watching the same act in, on the split screen and playing and start to finish footsteps, breath, touching your face uh, and all this shit. I'm like, fuck, man. He like the, the thing I took away from that is this guy has practiced this. In a in front of a mirror in his bedroom in the shower eating dinner in his mind you know in his sleep because that's the only way I can think of being that on beat for that long you know even if it's only ten five ten minutes it's like I couldn't do the same thing twice in a row with a distance of two minutes you know like that and that was that just blew me away and that really kind of told me something you know like oh. Because when you see it for the first time, you're like, oh, you know, the improv, the the this, the that, and all this like kind of freewheel shit. L- like, l- let's take that into effect before I answer the DJ question. So you see where I'm going with that? I do. Okay. So the second part of the answer is there's a famous fight between me and two managers. When I started out, I had two managers, really, and they were part of a kind of management company. And uh, one handled this side of the business, the other one handled this side of it. The- but they were a team, you know, and, uh, and, and they're great guys. And it wasn't like a, an epic rift or split up or anything like that. But it just came time to segment the business where... You know, um, my my manager wanted to go here, and his partner wanted to go there, and they had to basically it was it was a divorce, and I had to pick which parent I went to, and of course, you know, I had to sit through the who do you want to go with, Joel? We're not going to tell you because this is a choice you have to make, so we're going to give you like you know a day with A and a, a day with B, and they're going to give you their stuff, and uh, you can make a decision as an artist like what what side of the business you want to go on. And I was like, okay, this is awkward, but sure. You know, uh, and then it became a not a fight, but, you know, a fight. <laughs> uh, and one of the arguments from a was, you know, Joel, uh, you really need to read the crowd. You got to adapt. You have to, you know, do this thing and then kind of, you know, play off the energy of this. And, uh, you know, it's a call and response kind of deal. You know, if you really want to make it as a DJ and all this shit. And then argument B was play the fucking hits and get the fuck off the stage. And I went with B. Because I knew in my heart of hearts, and I, and I and you're right, I've been subjected to this too, where it's you know, hey, you know, have you ever just done you know that this and that, and how do you how do you change your shit? And quite literally, and and I, I'm actually somewhat notorious for saying all we do is hit the button, and it's 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 predetermined, it's preordained for the rest of the night. And, but but that's a two part answer because there actually is that kind of playing off the crowd thing. But that's that's DJing, you know. So hey, you know, hey, play play this, play that, play this, play that. You know, you can't you, know, you can't preordain that. You know, where you know the 
little wobbly stiletto girl like hobbles up into the booth and ah, it's my boyfriend's birthday he really loves oh, okay well i'm gonna work that in as a dj because dj to me in my mind is exactly that disc jockey you know um so they've got a big crate of records or a library of music that they they go in yeah you know what it's a whole bunch of whole bunch of it's a wrinkle ranch tonight so we're gonna play uh 90s hip-hop you know and, and stuff like that and he just kind of goes with that kind of thing to to suit the the surface level you know kind of intake of what the crowd is and, and what they like so yeah that's a thing but when you start being a purveyor of your own music and performer and you you know you're you're known and doing this thing it becomes less of picking records out of a out of a hat, so to speak, and, and, you know, throwing them down like myself, I, I only perform my own music so I can set the tone myself. Like I can, I can sit at home and say, okay, I'm going to open with this track. Uh, I'm going to do this, 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 this. And especially when you bring in like mechanics and sequence things like lighting cues and video cues and all these kind of signposted things, you can't freestyle that. It's just technically impossible. The MA, you know, the lighting console guy is not a virtuoso. He's he's running a simpty stripe throughout the whole show. So you can't go off script because then all of a sudden the content on the wall is for what would have been, but you've now just decided to play living on a prayer, you know? So yeah, no, you're right. It It, it is bullshit. Um, but yeah, as you go up the rungs of, you know, the, the, alphabet of listings of djs once you get into the b's and the a's and the triple a's and all that stuff then it's then it's fucked up then it's just like why am i even here uh you know anybody could come up here and and possess enough talent to hit play on a playback system but there's also a strong sense that we need as animals of being in the room with someone who uh, has created something beautiful. And that's the value of the ticket. Uh, I, I have no reservations or uh, disgust towards, oh, what is my purpose if I'm on a stage? That only applies to the, the performance part. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. Like I, I love being there and seeing and, you know, being a part of that, you know, social activity where it's it, like the thing is. And it is also. It also informs your next show. It also informs your next piece of music. It also informs everything that you're there and in the room and real and in that position from that vantage point that you will be in again. Yes. So and, that's uh, my focus then shifts towards how do we present it with technology and effects and lighting and all this stuff, you know, how do we doll it up? So it's worth talking about because the thing, and I've been getting this question a lot is, you know, uh, Oh, during COVID, are you doing these virtual shows? And I'm like, well, there, I don't even like that word because it's, it's, there's nothing show about it because the ticket isn't, I only occupy an hour and a half of your time at a ticketed event. The real memories are made from getting in your Ford fucking Yaris, running out of gas on the way there, and uh, you know, standing in line and having a conversation with so-and-so, and, and literally being in the venue for hours, having drinks, getting lost, uh, you know, meeting like-minded people and stuff like that. That's the show. That's the ticket. It's, it's, the, it's the entire sphere from 4 p.m. to... 3 a.m. you know but my my time really only occupied 9 to 11 so that you can't virtualize that right and you know you can't even 
all the stuff you're saying is is all true, but also standing that close to that many people is an event in itself. Right. Whether you're there to see Dead Mouse or the Pope or Penn and Teller, that feeling of people are this close to me and people are sharing something and it doesn't matter what it is. Right. hundred percent. That's, that's what event is, you know, but uh, it's, it's fascinating to me that, um, I mean, your nail gun, uh, example is the perfect answer. You know, we are trying not to let the audience write our act, right? We are trying to bring them through an event that we orchestrated. So, if Teller and I could push a button, we would. It just happens that the what we're working in requires that we go through these analog activities to make them mean something. Right. That was exactly uh, was exactly the answer I wanted. Thank you. There you go. That's uh, what it is. It's the nail gun act. Yeah, it's 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 beautiful. It's really beautiful. Well, hey, listen, I won't, I won't keep your time, but it, it's been a, a pleasure and a privilege uh, to finally be able to meet. Just wonderful. Wonderful yeah, to talk. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we will try very hard to get you on Fool Us. That'll be fun. Oh, hey, I'm easy, and, and you know I'm more than cooperative. So, uh, I, I, yeah. Thanks so much, sir. And that's it with Dead Mouse. We had a great time talking, and now that was Penn Sunday School. That was Penn Sunday School. Cha-cha-cha. And to listening. You become naked. Boy, you know, uh, Dead Mouse and I have stayed friends since then. Oh. We've worked on the show, everything. It's been been really wonderful getting to know Dead Mouse. And that conversation was the first one we had. It was really good. You know, we love you. You got anybody to thank there, Matt? You do, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, it's time to thank the people who support us here on Patreon. The Wrestling Independent.com, the heartbeat of pro wrestling. Michael Fritz, Little Mandar, Betsy Batter, Michael O'Sullivan, Danny Hagudo, does this rag smell like chloroform to you? Ruse, Gary Cornley, Chris Tehachapi Loop. Oh, Tehachapi, Tehachapi, Chris Tehachapi Loop McKinney. There, I finally got it. Eric M. Rain. NewRuleFX.com. Vote for Trump 2024. Sean Nathan P. Steve Feldman. Ulrichy. Mike Cavanaugh. Brad Shuriag. Dang Griffith. Soapy Fresh. Plus $110 boner office. Matt Williams. Shane Farah. Ben Price. Average Seal. Peter B. Clark. Jason Andrew Davidson. Thank you so much. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 